Now, you may not know this, but occasionally here on Classic Movies Live, we like to talk about a little thing we like to call a classic movie. And when we do that, we like to bring on a guest, someone who is well-versed in classic movies, and just sort of ask them uh, what they think would be a classic movie and why they think it's a classic. And today, we are blessed to have on uh, one half of the Bloody Broads pod, We've got Bhavna Sharma. She's going to introduce herself properly, so I'm going to stop right there before I uh, before I give away too much more. But she's coming on to talk about one of my favorite movies, uh, maybe ever, Mad Max Fury Road. This was awesome. This was an, a really fun episode to record. It was a really fun episode to do research for, because doing research for a Mad Max Fury Road episode just means watching Mad Max Fury Road two times. So this one was just... A lot of fun. Uh, I'm really excited for you guys to hear this. I was excited to... I'm honestly excited to listen to it back. I listen to all these episodes once before they go up. And um, I hope that you're as excited to hear this as I am. And another thing you should be excited to hear is a song that uh, you'll hear Bhavna talk about a couple of times. This is Brothers in Arms by Junkie XL from the soundtrack to Mad Max Fury Road. You're listening to another episode of Classic Movies Live, the pre-recorded show where uh, we normally talk about car chases. But every now and then, we like to go back to our roots and dissect a real classic movie. And the last time we did this, we brought on an expert to talk about the 1979 movie Alien. And this time, we've talked on, we've brought on another paragon in her field to talk about a much more recent movie. Uh, today we have with us Bhavna Sharma, one half of the Bloody Broads, your horror guides from page to screen and everything in between. How are you doing, Bhavna? Oh, all gassed up after that intro. Thank you. <laughs> I wouldn't call myself a paragon, but I appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Uh, I'm doing well. How are you? Uh, pretty good. And we also have with us here today Pierre, who is, of course, always with us. How are you doing, Pierre? Hello. Another sunny day in Vancouver. Um <laughs> Yeah, it's the opposite of all. sunny here. So yeah. yeah, I'm sorry. It is cold here, though. Surprisingly cold, or maybe I I'm mean, just not used to being cold. So it's getting to that point of the year, I guess. Which it uh, has been a year. So since <laughs> since last time it was cold, so it adds up. I I was just there in uh, at the end of September, and it was. Um, Colder than I thought. I had packed shorts and I didn't get to wear them. And I was kind of sad because you had a bit of a heat wave before that. <laughs> yeah, there's someone. I'm starting a conspiracy theory. Someone, someone's trying to make Vancouver colder. It's weird. 
I'm going to get to the bottom of it, though, and I'll make like a classic movies live classic produced classic movie about how Vancouver is cold now. Dude, yeah, if you want to <laughs> if you want to do like a journalistic expose, <laughs> it's not like what we normally do week to week, but it's always appreciated. Thank the you. one I, time I, we did that, people like gave me lots of props for it. I would love to talk about a movie that I made for an hour <laughs> that no one else watched. That's the dream. Oh, I'm sure people will watch it. Oh, thank you. See, now I have I have one confirmed viewer. Yeah, so, and you know what? We'll good. have you on to cover it. There you go. Perfect. Now you've got yeah. at least one cross promo. Now I have to make this movie. <laughs> yeah. I mean, oh, God. you keep making me promise to do stuff, so now it's your turn. Yeah. Okay. You got to do it. <laughs> okay. So before we get into uh, the movie we're talking about today, uh, I just wanted to give you some time to introduce yourself, Bhavna. Uh, mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about yourself and Bloody Broads. Uh, well, I'm I'm Bhavna, as we said before. I'm one half of Bl- the Bloody Broads pod. My uh, co-host, Jamie, couldn't make it today, but she also is a fan of this film that we're going to be talking about. Um, and uh, we have a podcast, uh, like I just said. Uh, we, were, we just kind of dive into horror movies and kind of dive into, like, the things that people don't normally talk about. So a lot of, like, the mental health representation is, like, a huge thing for us. Representation in general. Uh, we just like to break it apart. But another thing is, you know, we enjoy movies for being fun. So if you like fun movies and you want, don't mind some heavy content, give us a, you know, give us a little check out and see if we're for you. Uh, other than that, um, we just launched some merch. So I will plug the hell out of that. <laughs> Uh, so if you like hoodies, it, especially if you're in cold Vancouver, uh, we do have some of those. <laughs> and I'll uh, I'll link to both of those in the show notes as well. Uh, before, you. there is one other thing I wanted to ask, because like mm-hmm. I, I've listened to your podcast plenty of times, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Um, and now it's 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 mostly horror podcast. It is a horror podcast, so it's mostly horror movies. Occasionally, you mm-hmm. do movies that I guess you wouldn't normally consider horror movies. Like I want, mm-hmm. I listened to the episode about uh, First Reformed, and oh, that yes. made me very scared to do this episode. I was like, "Am oh. I smart enough to have Bhavna <laughs> on my show?" Oh, of course. And I mean, I, I listened to you guys as well. Um, so I was a little intimidated, too, to come on. I'm like, am I good enough to be on this show? But um, you're right. We do cover movies that aren't typically considered horror, uh, or at least not like mainstream horror, what people would consider horror. But with First Reformed in, in particular, as you probably heard on the episode, too, like it's an existential horror. Mm-hmm. So it's not your typical uh, supernatural or... Um, sci-fi or anything like that 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 kind of horror it's very like oh crap i have to sit alone with my thoughts and think about the state of the world and let that consume me kind of a horror yeah so i guess like the the main question i just wanted to get at was like yeah when you do branch out outside of conventional horror like what uh Mm -hmm. what what kind of movies do you what what kind of movies make you do that? Like when do you when do you branch out outside of horror? Is it just like when one of you is like, I really want to talk about this movie. Let's find an excuse. Or, um, well, I mean, a little bit of that, but a lot of it is also like movies that we find haunting. 
Because right. if it's something that haunted us, then we consider that kind of part of horror as well, because, you know, it made us scared in some way. It doesn't have to be blood and guts. It like, it doesn't have to be, you know, the devil made me do it type of thing. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's something that scares us or that's something that falls into that, that kind of category. And yeah, we do kind of find an excuse to cover it. We're, you know, at the end of the day, we're like, it's our podcast. Let's do what we want, you know? But, um, mm-hmm. cause you know, a lot of movies like thrillers kind of fall on that like really thin borderline between horror and not like, for example, like I want to at some point cover the movie identity, Mm -hmm. you know, um, which most people would not consider horror, but I feel like it falls into that category. If it's meant to scare you, then we'll cover it. Personally, the scariest movie I've ever watched is Eyes Wide Shut. And I don't think very many people would consider that scary, but my specific upbringing has like, I watched that and I was like, I hate this. I got to watch it again, but I hate this. And it's probably my favorite Stanley Kubrick movie at this point. Were you raised in a sex cult? Uh, no, no. Okay. I was just raised in the Bible Belt. Like, got not, you. Uh, not, not like in the church like Jamie was, but, okay. uh, you know, down in that same sort of area. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Sorry. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> When I originally reached out to you guys, I Mm -hmm. sort of expected, uh, if you guys responded at all, I sort of expected that you would respond with wanting to talk about some horror movie. And (laughs) I would say that uh, that is not the case. So do you want to tell us a little bit about the movie we're talking about today and why you guys decided that this is the movie we're going to talk about today? (laughs) Well, we're covering 2015's Mad Max Fury Road. Uh, a it is a feminist icon of a movie. It is it has everything you could ever want in a movie. Like it's all killer, no filler. Uh, amazing, amazing music. I'm a music person, so that 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 score lives rent free in my head, especially the track "Brothers in Arms." Um, it uh, just I. I I don't even know where to begin. It's just a movie that both of both Jamie and I could give a TED talk on unprompted. You know that that you know sometimes that that uh, tweet or that meme or whatever that goes around that's like, what could you talk about for thirty minutes straight with no preparation? This mm. movie. <laughs> yeah, holy! I I hadn't seen this movie. I think I've only seen it at least before this year. Mm-hmm. I think I only saw it back in twenty fifteen as a as a double feature with Pitch Perfect two. Uh, which was an amazing night, by the way. Yeah, uh, that's an interesting duo. I would, I would watch they, that double bill. <laughs> yeah, they they came out the same weekend, so it worked out. Um, but then, like in preparation for this episode, I watched it twice, and I was just saying off uh, off air. Um, I, I watched it twice, but the second time I watched it was yesterday at 10 p.m., which is kind of far in the past. So I almost watched it again this morning. And uh, I didn't, but maybe I should have. Like, it's that good. Mm-hmm. I definitely threw it on this morning <laughs> to prepare for this, even though I didn't really need to. I was like, what? like I was telling you guys off pod, why would I deny myself the pleasure of rewatching this beautiful film? Yeah, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. I just pulled up the uh, list of awards at one, which we'll talk about, I'm sure. But mm-hmm. uh, Pierre, when, did, uh, when was your last time watching Mad Max Fury Road? Uh, <clears throat> I think I've only seen it twice. Like I saw it two weeks ago and I saw it in theaters in 2015. Not that it, I really loved it the first time. It just feels like one of those movies that are like, I only want to watch it if like 
I really, it's, it's not a filler movie for me. I'm not going to watch it because I'm bored. I'm going to watch mm. it because like, I'm excited for it. Um, there's a couple movies I haven't, like, I haven't seen Terminator 2 since the first time because I'm too, <laughs> I'm too scared to watch <laughs> it again and it not be as good as the first time. Um, but I can confirm that Mad Max Fury Road does hold up eight years later and it's still the pinnacle of uh, action movies to me, even as, I mean, especially now I've, there's been a lot of bad action movies this year and I'd say it, it could come out this year and it'd still look, it'd, it'd crush everything in the competition right now. Have you uh, agreed? So like George Miller has been developing sort of a prequel to this Furiosa for since, since this came out. And also apparently this was originally planned and still might be the first in a trilogy of Mad Max movies. So there's like lots of things that could happen from this and still haven't. Uh, but like, I don't know, man, if he never made another Mad Max movie after this, I would be satisfied still. Like this is, I, I legitimately think, I mean, a lot of, I, I always write in the notes that uh, you're going to have to come on and defend why this movie is a classic and we'll get to that. But like, I think this might be one of the best movies ever made. So you'll get very little pushback from me. Great. But, but I am ready to defend it to the death. I am awaited in Valhalla shiny and Chrome for this film. (laughs) So uh, before we get started, well, I mean, now we are, we have gotten started, but uh, do you want to very briefly summarize what this film is about? Uh, I think it's a very quick summary, honestly. It's but. on. It's a very simple plot. Um, men are trash. I mean, what? Uh, but <laughs> well, this film takes place in a in dystopian Australia, just like you know the original films. Uh, and it starts out with Max being caught uh, and being turned into a blood bag, a universal donor, as we find out from his body tattoo. Mm-hmm. Uh, you find out that there's going to be a big. Um, uh, I don't know really how to call it, just like a, a recruiting, like a, a resource finding mission that Furiosa is going on to go get some guzzoline from Guz, Guztown, I believe. I forget. I don't care. It doesn't matter where she's going because that's not where she's going. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's this big send off. Uh, you see that he's been hoarding water from from his people uh, in, um, in Morton Joe. And uh, so gross, honestly, those uh, we will get to we will get to the makeup and stuff later, but that still makes me gag eight years later. Mm. Um, And uh, she pulls a little double cross. She steals his breeders, ew, uh, i.e. his like pregnant little concubines, uh, very young women, and uh, is taking them to the promised land of, you know, the utopia that they were promised where everything is green and there's water and there are resources. And then uh, shit goes sideways and there's a lot of metal car chases and things and double crosses and uh, a whole lot of fun. Uh, and some of the, some of his war boys who are his, I'm, I'm, I, this is where I've never been clear. Are they his sons? Are all of them his sons? Are some of them his sons? I'm not quite sure. Uh, but uh, one of them, Nux, has a change of heart and uh, it's, it's, it's just a glorious battle to the, to the death. Yeah, it's it's unclear everyone's relationship, but like maybe maybe they're all his sons. It's clearly yeah. clearly the really dumb one at some point. Sorry for or getting into spoiler territory here, but at one point he goes, "I had a brother and he was perfect in every single way." Well, yeah, that is definitely his son, but he's also not 
called a war boy like he has special status so that's why there's like doubt like i don't know if the war boys are his sons because the ones that are that are like definitely his sons all have like special status within the society no you're absolutely right and like and that's the thing that i was saying earlier too that this movie is all killer no filler this is the only space where i would find like you know where i would be like okay maybe i should know the names of these people because it really doesn't matter at some point but like i would like to know because otherwise they're just expendable little ashen looking bald sick men dying (laughs) on the road Which, which is like also kind of the point like the point of the war boys is that their expend their entire like life philosophy revolves around their expendability, which is like, I mean, we'll get into it slightly later, but I think that Nicholas Holt gives my favorite performance maybe in any movie ever in this in this movie, and it's like entirely because of that. Oh, agreed, agreed, and I mean they even do call them the half the half-life boys as well i believe in the beginning that uh he calls them like you know his half-life crew or something like Like, that as well so it's like they point out that like he nicholas holt being like in this movie what almost 20 or something i don't know how old he actually is but like his Uh, his character is not super old and he's at the end of his half-life He's like, like, I don't know about his character, but I know Nicholas Colt Holt himself would have been like in his mid twenties at that point. Right. Like almost 30. <laughs> so yeah. Woof. <laughs> what are they feeding you guys? What are they feeding you? <laughs> I think, I don't know where the war boys, I guess uh, one of the great things about the movies that they don't really explain like much, if anything, you know, a yeah. lot of it's just presented and, it trusts the viewer to kind of make make sense of it, which I kind of I think is best because I think a lot of it doesn't really make sense if you think about it. Um, but it's one of the things that makes this movie really special. And it, it kind of worries me that they're making a prequel because a character like Furiosa, I thought it was really cool. Just it's like it's like uh, I, I was really interested to understand why everyone really respect because it's obviously a very male dominated Um, structure there so the fact that Furiosa had such a high position of power in that system means like she Mm -hmm. she, like she's a badass right she must have done some crazy stuff Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm a little worried about finding out with the back it feels like a Han Solo situation where you're like oh like maybe I don't want to know exactly what she did because it can never be as cool as what I'm imagining yeah and then I also don't want it to take like a Game of Thrones road of like are we gonna throw in some gratuitous torture here to like Mm like you know how to show how she won respect in the eyes of these extremely uh narrow-minded people (laughs) yeah yeah it's like um i normally i i think i say this a lot on our show or at least i like imply it um i don't care very much for like for for like movie series that get really really into the lore like i think it's very funny that every single droid in Star Wars has a huge backstory that's expanded on in multiple novels. But I don't actually like that. Like, I think it's very funny, but I think it's funny because that's not the way things should be. But then watching this movie, I'm like, I am so intrigued by this world that I understand why people want to do that. Like, figure out why, like, expand on the trash on the trash compactor robot in three separate novels. 
Like, this is the movie where I'm watching it and I'm like, I get it, actually. Because <laughs> George Miller really just gave you just enough for you to understand and the motivations behind the mm-hmm. actions in this film. And then was just like, here you go, here's some action. Yeah, and like, there's so many, there's so many like tiny scenes that imply that like, I don't think I actually want the mystery to be like taken away, but that clearly show that George Miller and whoever else was writing this movie, like put a lot of thought into this world. Like when they're going through what spoilers used to be the green place, Mm -hmm. um, there's, there's just a random shot of uh, what looks like an old woman walking around on stilts and it's mm-hmm. like, what is this place? What is this swamp place? I would be curious to know more about this place. And then they just move past it. Yeah, because they got to get out of there. They're being chased. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not important to this story. But like, clearly some thought went into who is it, who is living in this place. Even mm-hmm. though it's one scene for like two minutes. Yeah, it sparks, an, it sparks enough curiosity to be like, do they live in tree houses? Do they have a water supply? How are they eating? How are they living? Where do they actually live? Is this where they live? Or are they just going through here? Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Um, I was I was also bummed out when that wasn't the green place. Like, I figured it wouldn't be because it was just too soon into the movie. And, you know, the runtime's about two, two hours. So the first time I watched it, I'm like, oh, no, what are they going to do now? Oh, I guess they're just going to fight. Yeah, well, I mean, like, that that was the green place, though, was it not? The swamp? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, it just, like, had gone was, sour. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I, I think also what makes the movie, like, because like you said, it's like, it ends, it all, it's like, it's building towards getting to the green place mm-hmm. and resolving some kind of piece, which I guess it does, but it kind of tricks mm-hmm. the viewer into thinking there might be, like, a calm moment at some point in the movie in a way, but it really is just fight after fight. And Mm -hmm. I think that does, uh, I I would say it probably turns off some like casual, like non-action fans, I guess. Um, So like, it is a very, like, obviously is like as an action movie, it's like action movies are meant to be blockbusters, but it's a very creatively risky action movie in a lot of ways too, you know, like, and Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, I'd say like in a genre, like the action movie feels like it's kind of regressing. Mad Max found a way to kind of push forward the genre without being like Avatar, you know, like it's not, it's not pushing the, the, uh, the limits of VFX, but it's, there's a lot of tools he's doing in there, like in terms of story and in terms of, I mean, the, the visuals in this are amazing too, but he, like he did a lot of them practically. Um, the playing with the the frame rate is really interesting. And I haven't seen that in a movie since, which I think would be like a really cool way to, you know, bring the action movie forward. Um, yeah, it's just, it's a very risky movie and I'm surprised it was made in general. You know, like you were saying with the, mm-hmm. the I mean, all the costuming, like people watching this movie, when they see the the first act and it's like, they just, they're presented with a bunch of like, like very ghouly people like it's not a it's not a pleasant movie to watch at first right you really have to get into it i agree and just to touch upon the green place as well for a moment again but like that was when uh the the dystopian dread was kind of like instilled in me like not the beginning where you see everything not like every not on the journey not even on the chase 
Cause you know, that's still, you're still full of hope, but it's when you mm-hmm. like get to that place that's supposed to symbolize hope of like, okay, maybe the world isn't as like messed up as we thought. Boom. This is how, you know, you're really just stuck in a dystopian messed up. Like you have what you have future, which, well, you know, turns the film around for me. Yeah. And then, the first idea after they get past that being let's ride for 160 days into the salt is like, <laughs> that's, that's awful. Yeah. Like who chooses that? Yeah. How bad is your life that you choose to drive for 160 days into the desert rather than going home? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, it's cool. Cause it like symbolizes Max's, I mean, obviously, at the start, Max is seen as someone that is just trying to survive, run away, do what he can to live, right? And in a way, we kind of, once we realize what the green place doesn't exist, that's kind of what Furiosa was doing, where she was taking what she could and basically trying to get away from it all and hide and not have to deal with the fact that there is like a, basically like a dictatorship (laughs) that exists and a bunch of people are suffering under, right? And that's not to say that like running away would not be anyone's first instinct, but it's really powerful that Max is the one, uh, you know, yeah. who's made his whole life about that to be like, Hey, maybe we should, you know, fight for, fight for it rather than, um, you know, just go off. Cause I guess, I guess it kind of parallels. There's two types of hopes, which is the hope of getting away from it all. And then the hope of fixing mm-hmm. what you have, you know? And I, I, I guess in a weird way, this movie's kind of a, it's like a self-help movie where it's like, it's like you know, you should you shouldn't run away from yourself. You should try to fix what you have and make make what's make do with what you got. Yes. Yeah, like uh, eat, pray, love in dystopian future. Except yeah. there's no eating, no love, but a whole lot of praying. Yeah. <laughs> I feel a little bad because I think I know the answer for this for at least Pierre. But have you guys seen uh, the Have you guys seen the other Mad Max movies? I I, I have. I yeah. Have. Okay. Uh, off pod a few weeks ago, I may have recommended to Pierre that he didn't actually need to see the rest uh, for this. And you don't. You don't. But I but like, really don't. the reason I bring it up is that uh, with the exception of the first Mad Max movie, I think that like all of the Mad Max movies, they don't really like they're called Mad Max, but Max is barely a lead character in them like he exists in this movie and he he talks like a hyena like uh and he exists just to be like almost he almost exists to be Charlize Theron and uh, Nicholas Holt so Furiosa and Nux's conscience like Mm -hmm. he just tells them when they have a bad idea he's like no this is a bad idea do a different thing and so he like (laughs) comes through it's almost like I don't know if George Miller has specifically said this himself, but I've seen the uh, opinion a few times that like Mad Max is fairy tales from a post-apocalyptic world. So it's like this guy comes through and this, this legendary hero comes through, helps your legendary heroes do the thing that made them your legendary heroes. And then he moves on. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what's happening here. Cause like, he has, I mean, Matt, Max himself has agency, but he is so disconnected from most of the plot. And even like the very last scene is just him disappearing into a crowd, which I think is so brilliant. Like, 
I haven't seen, like I said, I have not specifically seen George Miller point out that that's what Mad Max is. But like the way that he shoots these, they're, they feel like, they they feel like a fairy tale world. Like it's belie- it's believable enough within the universe of Mad Max, but like that universe is very silly. And so mm-hmm. like you can imagine that this is like some myth from hundreds of years down the line or even just decades down the line. I think yeah. that's specifically the way that the th- that the second Mad Max is told. Yeah, and I feel like he's like basically Jiminy Cricket or Genie or, you know, Sebastian or any, yeah. sub in any one of these characters, you know, uh, Mushu, like he's just there to to help, to guide, to be gui- to be like, are you sure about that? You yeah. sure that's good? Okay, don't, you know, hate to say I told you so, like just to be that guy, which honestly works really well, especially in Fury Road. Because he doesn't, he knows when to speak, when not to speak, when to step up, when not to step up. You don't see, there's only maybe one or two moments where he kind of has some kind of hesitation. But Mm. you, I like that we also get the motivation from him that he's living with his demons. Like, we don't know exactly what happened, but he definitely let down the last group of people he was with in some way, shape, or form. Or he felt he let them down um with those visions he has in the beginning mm-hmm. like max is that you where were you you left us like you know so he's like i've been there done that don't want to do it again and especially having seen the other mad max movies none mm. of those are archival footage and they're nope. barely like they barely would make sense to just graft on to the other mad Max. like this isn't referencing past things you've seen because it's not important it's like he let nope. someone down was that someone in fear in in like the road warrior? Doesn't matter. It was someone, and he's been on the road for however long. Yeah, exactly. Like this movie is just all you need to know before you watch this movie is that uh, all you need to know from the Mad Max lore in general is just that dystopian future uh, and a feral man. That's it. Feral yeah. man with a car, <laughs> which they establish in the first. 30 seconds of the movie so you don't really need to know that much no you can just go into this completely blind like a lot of people i know did and i i have seen the movies but i saw them when i was a teenager right and only like once because i worked in a candy store that had vintage posters and one of them was mad max and i'm like huh that looks interesting went and watched it and i was just like ew mel gibson though and (laughs) You know, like I enjoyed the action, but that was about it. So when they even announced that they were making another Mad Max movie, I was like, do we need this? But I saw the cast and I'm like, well, if they signed on, I kind of trust their body of work. So let's see. And Mm -hmm. I was not disappointed. So I wrote down a couple of points here and I have uh, I wanted to talk a little bit more about the performances in this movie. We talked like a little bit about Max, which is Tom Hardy. Um, but obviously, like, despite his name being the one on the poster, he's not really the star of this movie. Let's just get right into it. Charlize Theron, Furiosa. My queen. (laughs) I would ride into glorious battle with her. She has such, her performance, like, she didn't have to do a lot to prove that she was strong, you know? Like, there was... Her, her facial acting was just superb because there aren't that many lines in this movie in general. Dialogue mm-hmm. is not really a thing here. So it has, it's all physical. And even from the way she loads up the truck, like even the shot of her just walking, you realize she has no arm past her elbow. 
Mm -hmm. You know, she's got that weird rig going up, her setting up her own rig, refusing the help from the war boys to do so, you know, doing everything on her own, all that kind of stuff. And then when you realize that she um, rescued the the women from Mm -hmm. from captivity and stuff, too, you're just like, wow, what is this woman? What is her story? What's going on? And just even when when they finally get that break and they they trust Max and everything and like she goes and she tries to shoot him and she would have she would have shot him. If yeah. it was a bullet in that gun, like that's the only reason he's alive. And I'm like, respect, great respect. Like she just such a multifaceted character. And like, you get a lot of her story from not her, which I thought was really cool. So she just had to be reactionary a lot of the time. And just, just, ugh, I can't, I can't even form words. That's how good she is guys. That's like, I can't, I just watch that movie and I'm just like, who are you? I want to be you, except I don't want to live in a dystopian future. It does make me worry a little bit for like the movie called Furiosa because, you know, she's a great character. And I worry that I honestly worry that any part of this movie is just going to be ruined a little bit by extra world building because this movie is so tight and like so um, and everything in it is just like given exactly the amount of characterization and world building that it needs that like. I'm very curious about who else Furiosa is outside of this one event. But also I'm worried that like, that's going to be the Kessel run. If we know what it is, then it's not as interesting. I guess that's a big, that's a big Ron Howard solo reference for all you guys. I fell asleep during that movie. I mean, I don't know if I should be admitting that on this pod, but I did. (laughs) It's probably for the best. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> um, no, but I, I agree. Like, we get a lot of, like, nuggets from about her, like, you know, like her mother and who she was and how she was connected to the women in the green mm-hmm. place and, you know, things like that. But I don't know how much I want to know more. Like, I want to know more because I'm a curious person and I would love to, I will watch anything Furiosa. Like, don't get me wrong. I will be there first day, first show, popcorn in hand. Yeah. But. At the same time, I'm like, how are they going to do this? Because, you know, like you said, the beauty of this film is just that, you know, it's just enough. You just know enough and it's mysterious and you can build in your own head and you've got your own canon and you've got your own ideas. And then it's like, what are they going to add to this? And also who are like, as much as I love Anya Taylor-Joy and I do love her work a lot and she is a phenomenal actress. I don't know if anyone could be as good as Charlize Theron. Mm hmm. Right? Like, you think Furiosa, you think her. So I don't know how you're going to get anybody else, even though we have a very strong, you know, contention of of young femme actresses that could do it. But it's still like, it's Charlize, though. Yeah. What about you, Pierre? What do you think? I think, like, the the fact that it's like Nicholas Holt, Tom Hardy and Charlize Theron all make me think they're like all actors that can give great performances, but oftentimes they, I think they just, they're very liberal with the roles they pick. So I see them in a lot of bad movies as well. Um, yeah. You know, like I, I think of Charlize Theron and uh, the fast and furious franchise. And I'm like, I hate her in those, like she's, she's not even like acting that well in those movies. Right. Like I just, it's not a good performance, but I know she can act. And this feels like mm. a movie where all of them were just like, really like, like they, they all have that potential and they just finally found a role that like a movie that really challenged them. 
and really made i mean tom hardy's been on a lot of good movies too i also i feel like this was like this and the revenant both came out in 2015 i feel like those two these two movies were like the ones that made him quit trying to do challenging roles because it sounds yeah. like the on-set environments for both of the movies were like really bad for him um or in general so uh but yeah like they're all they're all giving like career defining performances and they're all they're all going on like full tilt. I think Charlize Theron, I mean, she's she's the star of the movie, basically. Um, that's why it feels also feels kind of derivative to do a Furiosa movie where this is basically her movie, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, it's just I mean, every like for her and Max, I guess, specifically, it's like a it's a very physical performance. A lot of their bonding doesn't come through dialogue. It comes through like their body language, like the looks, the looks they give each other. And, and the uh, fact that, like, typically the only person who can do any given task is either Furiosa or Max. Like, they have yeah. they have to like split up the tasks specifically because they're the only ones that can do yeah that can do them. Well, yeah, they kind of slowly learn to trust each other. One one of the most beautiful moments in the movie is when he is trying to shoot. He's trying to snipe down the the guys chasing them, and he misses the first two shots and I think there's like one bullet left and then she's, she's not going like, give me the gun. Like I'm the sniper. I'll do it. She like goes behind him and she's like there. She's like, I trust you, but I'm here if you need me. And then, and then that moment where he's just like, he sees that and he's just like, Oh shit. You're like, this is something I'm not good at. So I'm going to help you do it instead. And he like admits that to himself. Right. And it wasn't Mm -hmm. that, see, that wasn't a dialogue moment. That was such a visual component to the movie and i mean there's the scene the movie's littered with with scenes like that but like that one specifically was really good and uh yeah it's just, it, like the it's, it's just so weird to have feel so much chemistry and such a bond between two characters that really never talk that much you know i want to say they have one dialogue scene where they actually talk and it's like i think he wakes up after they go through the canyons and that's basically it you know and it's not like backstory or anything. It's just like, like, where are you going? You know, like, that's it. So yeah, both, both are really well done. I don't know if that's because of the conditions on set where, cause it sounds like they hated each other on set. <laughs> but, yeah. And sometimes I've like, you know, great performances can come from that, but I mean, they, they just did really well here. Everyone on like everyone did. There is some, I mean, like even what's her name? Rosie Huntington Whitley or like some, yeah 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 like i think i had seen her in transformers 3 that was the last time i saw her and you know transformers is not the greatest movie to showcase your acting talents so i kind of like i like i didn't even realize it was the same person because in this she's just absolutely amazing in this too you know yeah oh actually just i'm glad you brought her up because like all those women were great zoe kravitz riley keogh abby lee and then, oh gosh, I forgot her name, but she's on Yellow Jackets as well. Um, one of the other wives. But like, they're not, you would think that they were all, uh, you would look at them as a collective, right? They're all wearing the same outfit. They're all pregnant, you know, all that kind of stuff. Or like, they're all, you know, made to be pregnant. Um, but they're all individuals they all have their part to play as well you know like some of them are more outgoing some of them learn to be outgoing some of uh i believe zoe kravitz's character toast she's like great with guns you know like 
to the point where I think there was one scene where um, they're in the thick of it and Nox is supposed to take a gun and they're like, oh, do we trust him with this gun? And she goes, no, he knows that machine. Like he knows, you know, she's like, trust oh. him. Yeah, where where Nux is about to take over the rig, and she's like, yeah. no, he's a, he's a rev head. He knows this stuff." Exactly. Yeah. So it's just like in the moment, like they had to kind of trust each other. It's like there's some glorified improv group, but make it action, you know? Yeah. Like they ne- had never met each other before, but they all know the parts they have to play, and it's just like, okay, either I trust you or I don't, and there's no room not to trust. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there was. Just, it, it's amazing how they turn these like very small roles in the movie to into these like great performances especially like i feel like the movie tries to i was watching it with my friend and she was like at the start when they come out of the truck i feel like you're kind of conditioned to like be like oh here comes like the the women that are being saved from him and it's like they're all like you're expecting it to be like overly sexualized and stuff at first but then like over time you kind of get to know them and stuff too and it does like a really good job of uh, of kind of kind of tricking you because again, so many movies I think would take the other route and be like and treat them in a different manner, uh, mm-hmm. like Michael Bay <laughs> did so well in his movies, you know. So uh, there's a good way of uh, you know kind of challenging that mindset, and especially like the I mean in the third act when you bring in the the older ladies as well. Like how many mm-hmm. action movies have you seen with older older women you know that are that are that have character development you know and are, are involved in the action scenes and it wasn't like like you could compare it to like like if you watch like the expendables you'll have like these 80 year old men doing the same thing but they all have like superpowers it's like it's ridiculous and it's not believable and it's just like it's not embracing like the beauty of you know being, mm-hmm. being an older person you know whereas this movie like all the older women they were part of the action but they also brought like a wisdom yeah. And like a calmness and an understanding that kind of really set the tone for the third act, you know, and they, they participated very well in the third act. And I was really, uh, you know, it was really heartbreaking to see them, to see each of them die, even though, uh, you know, like we, we didn't really get much time with them. More than like a, mm-hmm. instead of like a um, an Expendables thing where you're bringing in the old badasses, it feels more like in Lord of the Rings when someone else realizes that Gondor has called for aid. <laughs> that's apt. That's a really so, so you've got like a new army that's going to help you beat whoever it was at this point. Mm-hmm. And like... I don't know, straight up, this feels, it doesn't feel exactly like Lord of the Rings, but it feels like the same kind of, um, the same kind of almost, despite it being dystopian, it feels like almost more of a, like, medieval action movie. Like, you've got siege cars, and it's, and, like, it's a big car chase, but it feels very, uh, it feels very, weirdly enough, it feels very low-tech, like, it feels like the whole point of the chase is to get, like, one car to smash into the other so that the one that they're trying to smash into either dies or stops. I don't know. Like, Lord of the Rings is the best thing I can think of as a comparison instead of something like Fast and the Furious, which is also car chases, but they feel very different. Like, the goal of those chases feels entirely different than here where you have little literal armies in, like, Mercedes. I don't know what they are. I think they're. I, I actually don't know what the make what make all these cars are, but I don't think it's like super important either. 
No, agreed. And it's it's like you've it, the medieval comparison was really apt because you've got like catapults and slings and and little explosive things that aren't exactly bombs, but they're not, you know, and then you've got the whole fire thing and the whole in, looking intimidating and, fly, you know, going into battle, that kind of thing as well. Like it's it's very medieval and you've got right. their armor, you've got everything you've got, even the way they're talking is very like, you know viking norse-esque you know i'm awaited in valhalla going into glorious battle etc etc so it's very much that like i'm going in to die i know i'm expendable i have drank the power you know the flavor aid i am in this like let's go you know um this is how i die protecting the old pustule covered gross looking nightmare fuel man (laughs) yeah it's so weird to me that in a dystopian society, in the dystopian society of Mad Max, this is the kind of person that thrives. Like, I mean, I don't know what other kind of person should thrive necessarily. I don't want to make that kind of distinction. But like, the people that are in power here are all so sickly. Every single one of them has like some extremely debilitating disease. And yet, these are the people that are like these are the people who are all powerful no agreed and then it's such a beautiful like contrast to the old women right who are so Mm. badass they're healthy they're thriving they're living all that kind of stuff and yet they're not the ones in charge because that's not what they wanted to do they're more like we want resources for everybody we're not here to hoard things whereas these gross looking sickly people these gross looking sickly men are just in charge and they're hoarding everything and it's like the complete opposite values and yet they're thriving and i feel like that's such a good social commentary on like Mm -hmm. you know not necessarily men versus women you know there's a broader gender uh you know spectrum than that but it's more like people that think one way and that are very selfish and very like we must preserve things for just us, us versus everybody else versus people that are just like, Hey, look at the big picture. We're all messed here. We're all screwed here. Like, let's try and figure this shit out. And I think this movie does have like a lot to say about toxic masculinity. And like, it's not completely unintentional that the, the patriarch, the people who are in charge of the patriarchy in this movie are all like, poisoned like all of them are so close to death and like they're not poisoned by toxic masculinity visibly i guess but like the metaphor could not be more clear but specifically that's my roundabout way of saying uh, i want to talk about nicholas holt in this as nuts <laughs> because man this is maybe my favorite supporting performance in anything ever yeah. like just period I love him so much in this movie. Just like the way that his character arc develops, it's very simple. Like his character just wants to be like, he wants to be awaited in Valhalla. That is like a glorious death is the highest honor that anyone in his society can aspire to. And so like the entire movie is just him trying like searching out what he thinks of as a glorious death. And it changes so many times over the course of two hours that like his character arc also ends up being the most complete and spoilers. (laughs) He doesn't die. He never gets his glorious death, but like he finds a new kind of glory by the end, which is really beautiful actually. 
Yeah, he's like the golden retriever boy of this film, and it's beautiful. But mm-hmm. it's also like, I would say his character arc is akin to somebody leaving a cult. Yeah, actually. Right? Being deprogrammed the entire time. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're so immersed in one way of life, you take two seconds outside those doors and you experience a different way of life or someone just literally puts a different perspective in front of you and you see the world, basically. He kind of mm-hmm. took a tour of the world in a hundred and whatever days, you know? And and it changed his entire life because him himself isn't, he himself didn't think these things, you know? They were taught to him. They were thought mm-hmm. for him. And now he's like, wait a minute. Like, was I living in a messed up, was I wrong this whole time? Was I living in a messed up society? That's wrong. Like, oh, this is wrong. These are people. They're not stuff. Because in the beginning, when they they go out and they realize that Furiosa has um, effectively kidnapped these women, they go, oh, we have to go get something. Furiosa stole Immortan Joe's stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and he goes, what stuff? And they say his breeders. So mm-hmm. like he goes from thinking of these women as stuff to oh shit, these are living, breathing individuals with their own minds and hearts and and motivations and things. And I guess I, we were wrong for treating them as wombs, you know? Yeah. Like they belong to no one. They are, we are, what was that they put in there? We are not things. That, that was their big quote for the women. Yeah. And so they're like, we're more than just what we're here to provide for you. Mm-hmm. We are people. So like just Nicholas Holt's whole arc is just one of the most complete character arcs I've seen in fiction, period. And like, I think it's, despite it being relatively simple, it's so layered too, because at the beginning, like at the beginning, his entire worldview is so shallow because like on the one hand, like, like you already said, he, uh, he views the, the women as breeders as stuff, but also the first time we ever see anyone like chrome up their face and go witness me, it's someone who's about to jump with some bombs into a car to explode. Why? Because the only way to destroy that car, which is currently chasing a bigger car, is to make it explode. And so like the first time that Nicholas Holt chromes up and says witness me, it's so that he can make his own car explode. So like, the idea at the very beginning of this movie of a glorious death that will make you awaited in Valhalla is just explode in your car. And by the end, like even the second time he does it, which is where he goes to Immortan Joe and says, am I awaited in Valhalla? Even at that point, there's already some growth there because at that point, he's not just trying to die. He's trying to actually do some goal. And then by the end, like what, gives him glory isn't just dying for some cause which is already huge growth from the beginning it's just like actually it's i mean it's living for some cause which when i say it all out loud sounds so trite but at the same time it is like really really well communicated in this movie agreed and like just again just to see how how well that's communicated and then his complete 180 mm-hmm. on it is just beautiful because you would think that like on a on a what is it two hour runtime film that like someone would make that huge like you know turn around with 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 not so much happening to him yeah there's mm-hmm. a lot of action but not a lot happens to him he's yeah. just observing he's a fly on the wall he is literally just helping out he only has the one scene i think with riley keogh's character 
where like they're kind of bonding and stuff and you realize okay i have affection for her she's a real human like Mm -hmm. what is this feeling you know if it was a musical there'd be some song about like oh what is this feeling that is stirred inside me but um it's not about that though like you it could have very easily have been like oh i am attracted to this woman or this woman has changed my life but it's not he literally has a complete about turn and it's organic you would Mm -hmm. think it wouldn't be but it's completely organic it's not fake like i've watched this movie i watched this movie four times in theaters when it in 2015 i like i i think i said off pot i own this digitally like this movie goes with me everywhere i go if i want to watch it it's on my phone you know Mm -hmm. um it's in my account i can watch it whenever i want i've seen this uh, so many times i didn't even have to rewatch it for this but like in no no time in my you know bajillion watches have i ever thought that okay this was forced from him mm-hmm. it's just so subtle and so complete that you don't even notice it till like the end where you're like oh shit like he's he's a new man yeah actually like i like you bringing up the scene with riley keogh because i think that like what's really cool in this movie and like this isn't this isn't necessary for every movie. I like romance in movies. I like romances a lot. This movie is almost it's not even allergic to romance. Like the very beginning of it, it's like anything that could be considered in this movie as romance or even relationships between two different two people of different sexes is inherently a little gross. So like we're not going to explore that aspect. And if we do, that's a problem. That's a red flag. If you ever get that intention, if you ever get that like feeling from this movie, which I think is like, I think it's really cool the way that it, uh, I mean, the way that it's like, that it builds out all of those relationships and never, you know, never relies on that or never, not even, not even really relies, just never even like attempts that path. I don't think George Miller would want to, but like, you know, it, it it never comes up. Even the scene that's maybe the most romantic in the movie between Nicholas Holt and Riley Keough is more like just someone finally understanding him than it is like, oh, they're going to get together now. doesn't matter. That's not important to the story. It's just like, how does this make him feel about himself as a character? Agreed. And like, I, like, if... I was okay with that being the extent of something romantic in this film, because I feel Mm -hmm. like the thing that this film does in general is prioritization, you know, it's prioritization. And it's like, okay, we are really in a dystopian world. We're not going to go for that romantic, like it's the end of the world. It's you and me. Give me a kiss before we die type feel, which don't get me wrong. I do like those types of movies, but that was not the vibe of this movie. Had they gone down that road, it would have been a betrayal to the script, to the plot, to like everybody else's performance. And it would have tainted it to be honest. Mm. So like that level is perfect. Cause that's, that's appropriate to what they were doing, what their motivations were, where they were going, the time crunch they were in. Yeah. They're literally in a war rig, you know, mm-hmm. on their way to fight. So it's like, this is the, like, you know, it's like how many times have you had to like shake out, you know, shake a friend's shoulders and just be like, not the time, not important, move on. We will come back to this point. You know, it's that version. But in this, it's like, hey, by the way, we could all die. So like, maybe let's try and not die. We have that chance. And if we live, we can come back to this conversation later. Yeah. Yeah, this movie takes place in almost real time. Not quite, but very close. 
Yeah, it's like there's one there's one night, right? It's a day and then a night and then the day back, basically. I want to say. And I think there's nights? one like there's one implied night because it's yeah. day and then it fades out and it's day again, but there may have been a night in between. Yeah. Well, was it night during when they were going through the the green place? Or was it just foggy? Oh no, I that was think night. It was yeah. just yeah. I think that was night, but I also think it was foggy. I think okay. that's like the mystery of the green place. It's like, are you in a nuclear fallout? We don't. Yeah. Know. Okay. Right. I couldn't tell. But, but basically, I, it's like a weekend. Let's just call it a weekend. Yeah. One one of the issues. Okay, I'm gonna name two issues. They're very small, but like, I feel like everything's so perfect that there was just two small things that stuck out. I think one of them was that I found it really weird how convenient it was that they were all like Immortan Joe and everyone else was just kind of sitting outside the canyon, like, and I'm not really sure what they were waiting for the whole time. Like, I guess he was mm-hmm. grieving his baby. I, I get it makes a little more sense if it was just one night. Um, which would because if it was two nights, then it would be a little weird that he was out for there for like a day and a half, just kind of sitting there. Because uh, I thought it would, I would assume they were, they would still try to chase them or something. But it seems like they were conveniently waiting outside the canyon for them to kind of go through it. But I get it's like I, I really don't know how you fix that. It's just like, well, I mean, they also a, sent the guy from the bullet farm to chase them, so it's not yeah. like no one was chasing them. It's just more like they'd sent out a because I don't know what the green place looks like to them. They probably didn't look at it as the green place. They probably yeah. saw it as a swamp. Yeah, so like can't get through. They, yeah. yeah. So just sending out like one guy who probably mm-hmm. could get through it to go in and come back. Yeah. And they knew that that was a strategic point too. Yeah. Oh, like right. that so there was no other way around it on the map. Like back. that was yeah. it. It was that canyon. So like if they're like, okay, we're vulnerable yeah. on the other side, I think. So I think that's why they sent the one person. But I get it. Like if you if that wasn't really explained or like, it's so subtle. Like, I think it's like just a throwaway one or two lines as well. So I get it. It would be like, why are you waiting here? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I think it does make sense overall now that I think about it. Mm. Um, And then the only other thing would be like, I think, I think the climax is odd. As odd as it sounds, I think the 20 minute car chase kind of ends anticlimactically. I think Amor and Joe just, I mean, I think that's part of the movie too, is that like Amor and Joe, when he dies, is just like really quick. It's not really much of a fight because he really is just like an 80 year old man (laughs) who's wearing a breathing mask and like can't really move that much. So like fighting him isn't much of a challenge, but it feels like it ends a little quick. But then again, it's just like the movies just there's so much happening in the movie that I can't think of a climax that would be like, 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 how do you how do you top that off? You know, and you can't really go bigger because the movie's already so big. So, and yeah, that's kind of like an allegory for real life, right? Like the most disgusting people sometimes have the most, have the deaths they don't deserve, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there isn't like, really a death that's like built up to in this movie. I really like that in a lot, yeah. in most movies. Um, I guess like most movies that pull it off, but like the deaths, pretty much all the deaths are like anticlimactic. Like no one, anyone who even tries to build up to a glorious death just doesn't get it. And I think that that's like, I don't know, maybe that's part of the point for Immortan Joe because he like has instilled this religion in all of the people under him that the best thing you can aspire to is a glorious death in fire. And then he just gets his face ripped off. Yeah. It's like very casually too. She yeah. just kind of pops up beside him. He's like, 
remember me and then he dies. So Yeah, she and gets I, equipped, I, but I don't even remember what it is. I think it's implied that he they believe he is immortal too. So like that he can't die. Mm-hmm. Which is why when they get back and he dies, like there's such a big shock from everyone. Um, which is why they let them up because it's like Immortal Joe can't be dead. He's he, like literally everyone truly believes he's immortal. You know, so and it seems like they don't seem like they don't feel they don't seem like they think that's a good thing though either like when he dies and it turns out he wasn't immortal everyone celebrates like they're not like oh shit they killed him that's crazy they're like whoa the ward boys boys are a little scared the the people that were starving celebrate i think a bit yeah yeah (laughs) they're like oh we get the water turned back on yes (laughs) yeah but no that's that's cult leader mentality 101, man. You can convince people of the weirdest things and have them believe it if they really want to, if they're at that place in their life. Like, I don't know how much you guys know about cults, but I mean, like, look at Heaven's Gate. Yeah, mm-hmm. fair. You know, like things like that. Like these people literally had them believing like in the day of, in the age of the internet, they had a literal website, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, still up, things by like the way. That. Is it? Yeah. Oh my God. At least I uh, saw it was as of a few days ago. Probably, I would not be surprised. But you know what I mean? Like these, these you convince these people of things so well enough that they literally buy it. You have to be deprogrammed. You have to go through like essentially like the hazmat suit, like you know, stripping down of your brain mm-hmm. <laughs> after these things. Like, like it's happening to these to this day. Like like Nexium and a whole bunch of other cults that are out there. Um, so I can totally buy that response from the crowd being like, what? He's not immortal, especially given the circumstances they're in, right? He's controlling all the resources. Therefore, he can control the narrative on mm-hmm. who lives, who dies, what's going on. Why do we have this? Why do we not have this type of situation? Like he's literally the one that, that is in charge of sending people out to get resources to go grocery shop from the bullet farm and, you know, the gas farm and, mm-hmm. and all these other places where there's clearly like, at least what I'm assuming is that there's a council of different warlords, right? With, within like within this specific part of the world, it looks like yeah. there was uh, there was a Morton Joe who controlled the water and maybe the produce as well. And yeah. then there's the guy from the Bullet Farm who you can guess what he controls, and then the yeah. guy from Gastown who you can also guess. So it's like. The th- I mean, the big things in this move in this entire world are: we need water to live, we need gas to get around, and uh, everyone kills each other. So bullets. So if you control bullets, <laughs> gas, and water, or water, like if you if you control any of those three, you're immediately one of the big three, because those are yeah. the three that have to be that have to get along in order for anyone to survive. Yeah, yeah. Just... It's like their own fucked up UN. <laughs> yeah. Can I say that scene with the bullet farm guy being blinded is probably one of the funniest things I've ever seen in a movie. <laughs> like, it's so funny. And it's not it like a, free. <laughs> it's like a, not a ha ha moment. Like, I mean, the movie's also hilarious. Like just in general, just the characters are just so wacky and beyond ridiculous, but they treat them so seriously that it's like, um, it just, it just really works. And yeah, that, that moment, like I, again, I've seen this movie technically twice but i still remember that scene so vividly and i was excited to see it again because it is just just hearing seeing him just shooting randomly and like like what was it was he praying or like 
he was something it's, like that. It's like he was monologuing about some weird shit. It's just, it's just such so ridiculous. But yeah, that's that's right up there from. Have you guys seen Deep Blue Sea? I have not. Oh, okay. I don't want to spoil it for you guys, but there's a scene where a character is just monologuing and like having the most like epic, like, like, you know, um, like we are not gonna like, we are not going to be afraid. We are not going to whatever. And then a shark comes and just <laughs> eats him mid, mid speech. And that's what this reminds me of. <laughs> oh man. So like I, When I'm watching this movie, I completely forget how silly it is until like, usually until the very last minute, because this movie ends on a quote that's, where must we go? We who wander this wasteland in search of our better selves. And it's like, damn, that's a deep quote. And then it shows who it's from. And it's the first history man. (laughs) Which is so funny to me. It's like, oh, okay. Obviously it's from the first history man. Yeah, well, I mean, think about it. When you have names like Immortan Joe, Furiosa, you know, Bloodbag. No, it, it makes <laughs> sense. First but History that, Man kind of makes sense. But that's where I remember that there's a person in this movie called the People Eater. And it's like, oh, wait a minute. This is a kind of a silly world. I'm just mad he wasn't purple. Exactly, right? <laughs> I mean, that he kind of was. If you, looked kind at his of. Foot, if you looked at his foot. Yeah, but that's not what I imagine a purple people eater to be. <laughs> True, fair. Oh man, no, this 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 film, I think it balances really well on the absurd and the realistic and the deep. Like you mm. don't think these things could have a beautiful marriage, but it does, and it's this movie. I think like I don't wanna I mean, we've already talked about Nicholas Holt in this in this movie, but I think that like what this one of the things this movie does so beautifully through its um through its balancing of those exact three things is like Nicholas Holt's character is like his entire character arc is like learning that there is more to life than a glorious death, which sounds like when you put it that way, it sounds so simple and so obvious, but this movie makes that like a really poignant message, which is not not easy to do without being like super pretentious and also obvious. And this movie is neither of those things. No, it's not pretentious at all. Like it literally... It disguised its messages in the most perfect way, in the most universal way. Yeah. You know, like this movie is like, everybody should like this movie. Like if someone doesn't like this movie, what is wrong with you? There is mm. something here for everyone in everybody's way of thinking from the fascists to the extreme leftists to the centrists to like, you know, uh, feminists, non-feminists, like everybody. Mm-hmm everybody it's got something for everyone you know like and hopefully it'll change a few minds because it it pushes its quote-unquote agenda really well it's a really beautiful trojan horse Mm -hmm. so if you i think we all have the potential to be like nicholas holt just to look at a new experience and take it in for what it is through this movie which you don't expect from a wacky dystopian action-fueled like metal as hell like movie like I, I know we haven't talked about the music yet but the music is honestly the thing the icing on top of this cake like well, i mean let's talk about the music i love yes. this like when i was watching yeah. this movie like i'm i'm alone in my apartment in the dark but i'm sitting there like <laughs> tapping on my on my table the whole time with the music because it's like it's just 
it's so hard not to get super into. I love uh, the fact that like the uh, I love the fact that the guitarist that they bring with them in the war band has his own like character and. I don't know what the backstory is, but it's clear he has one. It's very clear yeah. that a lot of character, like a lot of thought, went into who this guitarist is. And it it really ties into the point we brought up earlier with the medieval style battle, because the, in medieval times and in ancient times, they did bring a musician into battle. There yeah. was like a dr- someone with a drum or something with an instrument to keep them on beat, to keep them motivated, to keep them going. Mm-hmm. There was of war like a doof warrior like you know yeah in medieval time this is just their version of it mm-hmm. and it's metal as hell <laughs> and like man there's the, the the way the music is integrated into the sound design too is so perfect like there's so many parts in this i love that like i don't know how i i know that junkie xl won some awards for this but i don't know how he didn't win more like this is it's uh, I love the the thing that sticks out to me most is the scene where the scene where they're all like sleeping and then they see the war uh, the war rig go through and they all like hustle to get back into their vehicles and follow it again. During that scene, you can hear the guitarist waking up. Like he's already mm-hmm. running, but the way that he's like the the notes he's putting out are like slow and they fe- they make it feel like he's not awake yet and he's just sort of like going through the motions before he can like get back into the song which i think is so cool like they give they give this one character so much characterization through just his guitar riffs and then like mm-hmm. you know the guitar riffs aren't even the entire soundtrack like there's so much more to this that just bleeds into the sound design so well like the yeah. uh, the whole thing has a, dr- the whole movie has a drum beat behind it that they show the drummers occasionally. There's 12 of them. They're there. You can see what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And my favorite track, my absolute favorite track is Brothers in Arms. And that's what plays while they're doing the Canyon Run. And like the first Canyon Run, I believe. Mm-hmm. And it, oh God, that, that track is just, if you are someone that is struggling to get to the bus on time, if you have five minutes between you and your bus stop and your bus stop is usually about 10 minutes away, that will get you there with a minute to spare. Just blast that through your ears and you will make it. Believe me. Like it is such an empowering track. Like I don't go to the gym, but if I did, I would play that. I would probably be ripped as hell if I played that track, like on repeat. Like, I know that's my ADHD trait to just play it over and over again, but I am not sick of that song. How many years later, like eight years later now, like I am not sick of it. Mm-hmm. Like that track is just, it's, it's almost like something, it's like the metal version of something you'd hear at a symphony. Yeah. You know, like it's just, uh, I, it, I don't even have to remember what's going on in that scene. That music lives alone. You know, like that track is just, it goes perfectly with their actions and everything like that. But also it's just like, it's just something that just lives on its own rent-free in my brain at all times. Mm -hmm. Cause it is just such like a good, it's just so good. Like, it's just, it's so empowering. It's energizing. It's, it's hard as hell, you know, like it has its, its lulls and it builds back up and like it has its swells and just, it's not too different from any other song on the soundtrack or any other song used in the film, but Mm -hmm. like it just stands out, you know, to me. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, Sorry, the, I'm a bit of a I'm a bit of a soundtrack nerd. If you guys couldn't tell, no, that's like I, I don't know. Like of any of any movie to be a fan of the soundtrack of this is this is the one. I feel like it it keeps the tension going so well during the whole thing. Like it immediately, like the soundtrack just like commands you what to feel at any moment, and you just go with it. Like it's that it's that effective. And uh, man, I. I wish I had listened to Brothers in Arms before this so that I had specifically in mind what this what that track was. A- apologies. That's but, okay. Listen to it afterwards. I guarantee it'll get you through your day. Okay. We'll, we'll do. I, uh, I, and like it 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 came in it came to me in my life when I was unmedicated and let me tell you, it did its job until I had to forcefully get some medication for myself. So, you know, for you neurospices out there, this will. This is a good hack for you. It's great. It tickles your brain in the best way. Yeah, it's a really. I I still remember it, and I, I've only seen the movie like twice, and it's like ingrained in my brain. I, I I I literally the part where you see. I think it's like the the bikes are jumping over and throwing the bombs. Like I still remember that yes. scene so vividly, just because the music frames it so well, and it's also I feel like the first time we see a. Uh, uh, Furiosa mm-hmm. and Max truly like start work when they're like kind of shooting out both sides of the car and driving yeah. and like throwing bombs away and stuff like it's it's just such a beautiful culmination of like like right? I guess like the first half of the movie coming together and finally this team's working so, yeah and it's yeah. like the choreography I don't know which this is like a chicken and egg situation because the choreography works so well with the like the beats and the crescendos in the track as well, right? Mm-hmm. Like like you were saying, when they were on the bikes and they're throwing the bombs, like the crashes and like all that kind of stuff, all timed really well with yeah. the swells and the ebbs and the flows of the yeah. actual track. So it's like, which came first? Did they write the track to the choreography or did they chore- choreograph the fight to the song? Yeah. Like it's just, it's seamless. Even like the, like they put the, the plow in to get the sand on the engine and then the music kind of swells into almost like a beautiful, like the violins start coming out more after the bombs have like stopped dropping as much. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. I, it's like, I like George Miller. In my head. <laughs> it's, it's so, it's so amazing how like literally every shot in this movie, you can feel like, cause it, it's like the music, like you said, there's like this weird, sometimes it's like the, I don't know what you call it, but it's like the like sound that's not in the movie, like in the world of the movie, sometimes yeah. it'll affect the music. Sometimes sounds that are in the music or and the soundtrack are actually you can hear it in the movie and it just kind of goes ebbs and flows back and forth and you're just like how did they plan this you know it's the same thing with the like the frame rate shots where like like some like the shots are like individual shots are like he changes the how fast or how slow they move just to see how it'll affect the next shot you know and Mm -hmm. it's just i mean it's I can understand why this movie was in pre-production for so long because it's just like they really had to have planned out and uh, what's the storyboarded literally every single shot in this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's crazy. And and like the pre-planning and everything, that's such a great point because you think about it, George Miller is not a young man. 
No, he's you know, 80. Like the f- I just, he's 80. It's crazy, yeah. You wouldn't expect that. You show this movie, let's just say let's just say you took this movie to a film class, a film class that knows nothing about who it is, right? Like they're, they go in blind. I mean, in this day and age, you can't really find anybody to go in blind to a movie like this anymore. Right. But like, let's just say for, for hypotheticals, you take this movie, take it into a blind audience full of experts, like film students or something. And you ask them to guess kind of like the age or kind of give a profile, like FBI profile type on like the creators of this movie. They're not going to give you George Miller mm-hmm. or George Miller's like mm-hmm. age or something like that. This is visionary. Yeah. Like you do not see movies like this from his contemporaries now. Like, yeah. like I, I love Scorsese movies. I do love them. Like I do appreciate them and I appreciate the mastery, but you can tell over time that he's gotten old. And I'm not saying that as a as an insult or anything like that, right? They're still his movies. It's still very much him. But he's not going to come out with something like this in his field. This you know? feels like a movie that was done by someone younger than the person who did Beyond Thunderdome. Yes. And it's that is not the case. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, I, it's, it's mind-blowing. It's wild that, like, this is brought to you from the visionary director who did Babe, Pig in the City and Happy Feet. <laughs> yeah. i keep forgetting that's him too (laughs) yeah it's kind of you gotta eat (laughs) it's crazy how like like i i feel like you're like it's so true how the like just there's so much energy behind it that you'd feel like it reminds me of like like steven spielberg and george lucas when they were like in their young like 30s right and how they were like out they were like because george miller also shot this all like on location they were out there in the shit you know <laughs> like it was not a comfortable yeah. shoot and i think they were there for like five months right um mm-hmm. i feel like a lot of directors when they get older and like odd like i would probably do the same thing if i was old they want to sit back and just relax on set you know george lucas was like he had everything green screen this time he was like i just want to work nine to five and go go home right after you know like martin scorsese i saw a really funny interview with martin scorsese recently about the making of the irishman and he said the biggest hurdle making that movie was that him joe pesci and robert de niro are all in their 70s so they had to coordinate (laughs) times because they all needed to nap yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah which is like totally fair you know like i'm not gonna diss scorsese for wanting to nap when he's 80 bro like yeah, <laughs> but yeah it just blows my mind that especially like george miller went from i mean in, i'm guessing in happy feet he was probably in a studio a lot and like it wasn't that stressful of a of a production in terms of mm-hmm. having to go out physically you know so just the fact that yeah like a seven-year-old man made this movie is like really shows like it's it's really not about the age you know it's just do you, do you have the passion do you want to do this you know mm-hmm yeah. Yeah. And like, even just like the messages behind it were very like, of the day, and unfortunately, still of the day today, you know, um, you wouldn't expect that from again, an 80 year old man. Yeah, you know, like, you wouldn't expect it, you'd want him to be comfortable, you'd want him to maybe settle into just the typical messages of like, hey, man, the world's gonna end, we probably shouldn't, you know, hoard resources or something you know like something along those lines except no he went right into the trenches with social issues mm-hmm. yeah. and was not subtle about what side he's on yeah, yeah. which is kind of it's kind of sad that we don't see more like up-and-coming filmmakers make are able to make statements like these you know um mm-hmm. like if, if this was made by like a 30 year old you'd be i'd be so excited to see like like what is this guy gonna do in the future of his career 
Um, and like, obviously like George Miller is going to go on to do great things, but he's not, he shouldn't be. I mean, we talked about this yes or last week, Jeff with Scorsese too, with Killers of the Flower Moon. It's just like people like, obviously I'm very appreciative that these older white guys that are like 80 years old are making these very progressive movies, but also like, I, I really want to see the younger generation really start to make an impact in that as well so that we can see that you know the trend going upwards Um, but hopefully this inspires a lot of younger filmmakers to do that as well agreed and like i would even add on to that and be like maybe it needs to also be done by people that aren't just from those groups that the messages are about you know yeah like yeah we're the best people equipped to tell these stories in our own from our own perspectives but maybe it shouldn't be just coming from us you know like this is this should be the era of allyship yeah, like I think um, I think we brought it up last week as well. Like it's awesome that we have Steven Spielberg and Martin Scorsese and George Miller, but like the reason we have those those people is not just that they were talented, but also that those are the people that got the opportunities. Like, yeah. there were probably there were probably dozens, at least, if not hundreds, of other people who could have become talented filmmakers at that time who just mm-hmm. didn't get the opportunities that they had. Agreed. And it's now it's time to lend out your platform. You spent your whole life building up your platform, building up your influence, building up your voice. Now is the time to when you literally have nothing to lose. Mm -hmm. Like the safest time in your life now is to be like, let me help this person out. Yeah. You know, or let me help this group out. Let me help that group out. Let me help out the world, you know, Mm because like it's it's frivolous to think that films and other things aren't important when it comes to changing people's minds. Because mm-hmm. it's literally the one of the only universal things that everybody has in common. Everybody wants to escape to a movie theater. Like, I come from a culture, like, I mean, I'm Indian. So I come from a culture where movies are extremely important to us, like, as an escape. Like, mm-hmm. that's why a lot of Indian movies are so fantastical. Because it's literally, like, that three hours you get to escape the hell that is your life. Yeah. Right? Like, so the fact that, like, you have people's attention. You have people's full attention for two to three hours, make the most of it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be a documentary. It can be fun. It could be Barbie, you know, mm-hmm. like it could be Barbie, which was great. Like, and you know, it does have its flaws, but it's such a great film. And it's a, such a good like stepping stone, but now maybe let's move away from Greta Gerwig and give it to some other directors. Like she doesn't have to hold the burden of being mm-hmm. the, the feminist or the, you know, whatnot. Like, cause, uh, you've probably heard on my pod, my very unpopular opinion is that like, though I think Greta Gerwig is a very talented director. I don't want to see another movie about a 13 year old white girl who has issues with her mommy. Right. Yeah. Because that is not my experience. And that is not the experience of most people I know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think what you said was about the allyship aspect was beautiful in that. Yeah. Like, just because like you are a, like, I mean with George Miller, like he's an old white man, but he, he still made an effort to make an extremely progressive movie about women. And it was like, not just white women. I mean, obviously the main characters were white, but like there was, there was, it was a very, it was a very multicultural, you know, cast, you know? And I think it's not an excuse to be like, Oh, I'm a white director. So I'm just, I can only tell stories from the white perspective. You know, it's like, like we live in a time where you can, you can get the perspective if you want, if you have the resources, you can bring on consultants, you can hire, you can work with people from other races. <laughs> like, like just because it's yeah. like, it's, it's not an excuse to be like, I'm a white director. 
So I have to make white male stories. And then only if, if you're another race, you can only make stories in your race. Like it's, there's yeah. something powerful about being like, I, I grew up in this perspective, but I'm going to go out of my way to empower someone else's perspective as well. Exactly. Like his group that the, the women, I don't want to call them breeders. That's just gross. But like, you know, the women, like you had Zoe Kravitz, you know, she's mixed. You had, I, again, I forget her name. I believe her name was Christine something. I will have to look that up later. I apologize to the listeners, but she's Maori. Mm-hmm. Like Riley Keough is a redhead. That's their own. Um, but you know, like you, you didn't just have the rosy Huntington Whitley character, you know, that's mm-hmm. just the, the beautiful blonde model right? Like, I believe she was a Victoria's Secret model as well. But like, you don't just have her like, yes, these women are all beautiful. But you have like Abby Lee, who's like this little feral Australian woman. Yeah. You know, like, that's the best way to describe her. She's just little and feral. But like, you know, it's 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 not like, su- is it super multicultural? Is it like every color of the world? No, but that like them not being the stereotypical standard of of white beauty is a huge thing. Yeah, like like that, like yeah. that little point. Yeah, they, they're not all waifish white teenagers. No. In fact, no. I don't think any of them are. So. No, like the only note I would like to have seen was to maybe have someone that was a little more uh, plus size, not because not even just because of plus size like representation, but just more like taking it back to the midi to, to the to, you know to like the uh, Renaissance times of like where if you had a little more meat on, a little bit more meat on your bones, you were better for bearing children. You know, mm-hmm. which like, I mean, clearly they did have, I, I don't know. I, I can't say it without saying breeders, which I also don't want to say, but they clearly <laughs> no. did say they did have plus sized people in the same role because like the people who produced the mother's milk were, oh man. The, the, yeah, the, I know. The wet nurses. The wet nurses. The, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they, they were all larger. And yeah. Like, and they would have had to have produced children to be able to produce milk. But yeah, I get it. And then that makes the point of like, okay, fine. The, the, the gorgeous Victoria's Secret models were the ones that were his prized stuff. Yeah. Yeah. There, there oh, is God. kind of a, <laughs> like to, to, to cast them. I, I feel like to, to create the, the anti-trope of like the models being like just models. Like he had to just hire models, but it's also like he had to hire only models <laughs> So it kind of creates this weird, like, I wish you could hire not just models, but also it would kind of, it's the theme of the movie is that they kind of have to be models in a weird way. Um, but yeah. I, I get your point that it's like, it's just unfortunate how that worked. Yeah. Had they not had the wet nurses, it would have been like, ew, George Miller, why? But now yeah. I'm like, okay, I see the vision. Yeah. I see the vision and I respect. It was there. It was there. <laughs> it was there. I see it. It's just like that line about the canyon or something, you know, it's yeah, like, yeah. okay, okay. You explained it. <laughs> I get it. Thank yeah, you for letting me exactly. use my brain cells. They yeah. haven't been used in a while. Yeah. And he, he really lets you use your brain cells in this movie. I'm not, for such an action movie, like, you do have to think to, like, yeah. Yes. To make sense. You do have to too. think. You do have to be like, okay, what? Wait, what? Like, yeah. and without pausing, you just have to keep going. Yeah. And I feel like this movie has a very Edgar Wright uh, quality in that, like, it was made to be rewatched. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It Always was made. New. For yeah. always something new he packs it so full that like and not in an excessive way not in a gratuitous way but he packs it so well and so tight that like you have to watch it more than once to kind of get the full experience mm-hmm. 
I, I know that he had re-released a black and white version, and I was really, really hoping to, like, watch that before this, and I couldn't find it. But, uh, mm-hmm. like, just, you know, the, the idea that there's so much more to explore in this movie that he even felt it useful to make, not a director's cut, but just a random black and white <laughs> cut. Release the Miller cut. <laughs> so, um, the last thing I want to ask is, uh, I think... I think that like we've talked about this a lot, so this may not have to be a very long discussion. <laughs> but uh, what what makes this movie a classic? This movie, being from 2015, only hardly eight years old, what makes it a classic at even that young of an age? I would say it made it a classic the moment it was released, like the moment it was unleashed onto the world for us to view. Because, like we've talked about ad nauseum in this episode, like. It's got everything. Mm-hmm. Like this is this is the hottest club in movies right now. You know, like it's got everything. It's got meaningful performances. It's got amazing music. It's got beautiful cinematography. It's got it's all killer, no filler. It's it's it lets you use your brain. The social messaging in this, you know, like the warnings for the future. Like this movie was a warning shot for what we could end up like maybe not this specifically but even just socially if we continue down this road hey this is how things might actually turn out Mm -hmm. because if you see yourself if you see yourself in anybody in this movie and it's not the women or the people that are waiting for the water maybe you need to rethink your life a little bit you know Mm -hmm. like at any point it's just as true now in 2023 as it was in 2015 as it was in 1985 Mm-hmm. You know, like climate crisis isn't new. The climate crisis isn't new. Like when I was a kid, it was called global warming. I did my, you know, grade three science fair project on it, it with the whole like full three panel Bristol board and everything. And that was probably my first spiral into anxiety was thinking about how the world would end. And I was only eight years old. Um, but no, this, this, this movie kind of, it, I, Again, I this movie makes me inarticulate. That is how much there is to say about this movie and how I would say it's a classic. This is a movie where I could put it in a time capsule and have it opened up in like 100 years, 200 years, and I feel like people would still relate to this as heavily as they do now and they wouldn't need any explanation of what was going on in the world. Mm-hmm. I've seen movies in 2021 that have aged much worse than this film. <laughs> like Fury Road hasn't aged at all barely feels like it's aged a day uh don't look up just doesn't work anymore it's 2023 it's been two years doesn't work anymore no and it has similar themes technically technically has similar themes it doesn't hold up this holds up children of men holds up if you Mm. want to talk about a movie that's older and in a similar vein and kind of holds up i believe children of men holds up better than don't look up but (laughs) well that's a that's a low bar that's but, a, yeah. I mean, this movie also tells you the bar is literally in hell. <laughs> yeah. This movie literally points out that the bar is in hell. That all, all women want uh, are just men that will respect that we have abilities and will let us do the things that we can do. And we will let them do the things that they can do. And together we will get things done. Like the bar is literally in hell. All we need is a nonverbal Tom Hardy and a willing to learn Nicholas Holt. <laughs> and then maybe, and some, you know, just some water, some seeds and getting rid of Immortan Joe. <laughs> yeah, you know, the, um, and then everything will be okay. Yeah. The, the two like good 
guys in this movie aren't they're not that good either they're like <laughs> they're just not evil that's it, hell maybe. hence the bar being in hell yeah <laughs> As, also like the not evil is debatable depending on what you decide is evil exactly it's like max uh what's his last name rakatowski is yeah. like a feminist icon and he spent most of the movie in a muzzle <laughs> And as a glorified speaking. IV. Hmm? And the rest of the movie not speaking. <laughs> and not speaking. Like, what are his lines? That's bait. <laughs> <laughs> no. Hang on out there. Just hold it up. I was just like, stand back. Like, you know. Yeah. It, just the scene of him just like drenching himself in the hose water. I'm like, I've felt, felt. I, I gotta say, like, Tom Hardy is a much better character as Max than Mel Gibson probably ever was. Like Mel Gibson. Then Mel Gibson is as a person. Well, obviously <laughs> that, but like, let's assume that Mel Gibson can like pretend to be a better person than he is. And like, even then I think Tom Hardy like <laughs> blows him out of the water as Max. Yes. And honestly, as like, uh, like subjectively speaking, as a uh, cis het female, this is the hottest Tom Hardy's been without taking his shirt off. I I can I can believe that. Like he quiet doesn't need to speak. Right, it's that like quiet, angry but tamed, angry man thing, <laughs> you know? Like I take a second before I say something because if I say something, I will regret it. Kind yeah. of. Like. But he's, he's a feral dog, but at the beginning he had that muzzle, and by the end he'd learned. He's he's the pit bull to Nicholas Holt's golden retriever. Yeah. Mm. Which makes the whole behind the scenes story of them learning how to knit Aww. even more <laughs> funny. I didn't, I didn't know that. I, I forgot who taught who. I think it was like Tom Hardy taught Nicholas Holt how to knit. Aww. That's, be- that's on, beautiful. On the set. That's yeah, lovely. and and if that isn't pit bull in pit bull in uh golden retriever behavior i don't know what is i just imagine like nicholas like tom hardy doesn't really have to wear much to set it's just himself and then nicholas holtz like he does five hours of makeup and he's out in the desert and he's like and now tom hardy wants to teach me to knit (laughs) knitting's not easy like i'm a knitter and like once you get it you get it but like to try new things with knitting as well aside from the first two stitches is like it's hard yeah like everybody wants that knives out sweater but cable stitching is hard (laughs) So just yeah, just works. the fact that they're both doing like just just picturing them in their outfits, you know, just like Nicholas Holt all like covered in that ashen makeup, just like, OK, now I'm going <laughs> to knit. Is this how I pearl? Like, is my tension too tight? Like, should I loosen it up? <laughs> I, I have to imagine that Tom Hardy's responses would be like, no, do that differently. <laughs> no, Not there. move your wrist. <laughs> just like three word responses at most. Too tight, too tight. <laughs> well, no. um, I I think it's very clear that we could keep talking about Fury Road for another hour and a half, but it has been an hour and a half, and I think that that's uh, if we talk too much longer, we're going to talk longer than the movie itself, which yeah, uh, I, th- I think <laughs> we got to cut it off somewhere. So, um, I mean, thank you for giving me an excuse to watch Fury Road again. This was oh, awesome. Oh, anytime. I might anytime. go and watch it again this week. I, 
because like, why not? Why would I deprive myself of that experience? Please add Brothers in Arms by Junkie XL to your playlist. If you take nothing away from this episode than that, just add it to your playlist. It'll pump you right up. Like anything, it'll give you the motivation. You know, like if you're like me and lack motivation most days to do anything, just put that on, put yourself in like, maybe not Max's muzzle and maybe, you know, have a whole arm if you do have one or not, if you don't like Furiosa, you know, and just, Get shit done for yourself, even if that's just getting up to take a shower. It'll it'll hype you up or, you know, run for your bus, you know, submit that report, write that article, uh, you know, brush your teeth. <laughs> it'll get you there. But but do it while listening to Brothers in Arms by Junkie X. That's it. That's it. That's yeah. it. That will get you going. It'll motivate you. It'll get things done for you. You'll be like, holy shit, I am now a, a hygienic, accomplished great smelling person by the end of the song <laughs> so we we did talk about it very briefly at the beginning but just to mm-hmm. remind everybody where can people find more of you bavna um well they can find me through the podcast they can find me at bloody broads we are ble- we're at bloody broads pod on everything except for blue sky where we're just uh, at bloody broads um we're on pretty much every social media platform so you can find us if you want to send us a message you can always send it to bloodybroadspod at gmail.com we also have merch uh on bonfire apparel so if you just uh type it like we'll put it in the you said you'll put it in the show notes but we're on there as bloody broads pod we have some awesome merch including this um, one of my favorite designs which is just guillermo del toro and it says take me away goth daddy (laughs) um super great but um, you can find me on all social media, basically, as The Lucky Charms. That's S-H-A-R-M-S, except for Instagram, where there's a little underscore at the end. Uh, just enjoy my shit posting and food I've eaten and things I've done. Um, I'm pretty boring on social media, but I always like talking about movies and other things. So hit me up. And we definitely have to have you on at least one more time because we, well, we need to have Jamie on and like, yes. when we reach out to Jamie, we'll make sure that we reach out to both of you. So hopefully yes, people please. will hear you here again one more time, at least many, yes. many, many more times. Probably. Yes. Hopefully. And we'll have to have you guys on as well. Like stretch your horror legs a little bit. <laughs> oh, I would love that. I, I know that Pierre's been behind the scenes trying to make me uh, watch Saw. Which I don't know if that's yeah. the one, but like. Wait a minute! You haven't seen Saw. I've seen the first one. I haven't seen the rest of them. The nine other ones. <laughs> yeah. The nine other Saws plus Spiral. Well, I saw I saw the first one and I saw Spiral. I don't know why I saw Spiral beside and not and not the other ones, but uh, I've seen those. Those are the ones I've seen. You haven't seen Millennial Icon, Screamo Icon, Chester Bennington stuck in a like public little gazebo. Wait, he fighting acted for his in life? one of those? Yes. Oh my god. And it actually, since you've been to TIFF, it was that little, you know, the public bathrooms outside Roy Thompson Hall? Oh. Those little gazebo y things? It was yeah. in that. Oh, wait, what? Yeah. Huh. See, he's missed. Thank you, Pierre. Please make him watch the Saw movies. I actually haven't watched them. Like any of them. So that's why I was. What? <laughs> that's why I need to okay. get him to watch them because I need to watch them too. So okay, you heard it here both first. Of you. We're going to talk about Saw, clearly. Yeah. <laughs> clearly. Oh my God. Now what we, you know what? Watch Saw. We'll have you on to discuss Saw. Okay. We'll come on for your Saw episode. 
or your next Saw episode. I don't know if you've already. We haven't covered it yet because Jamie's not as big of a fan on 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 the torture aspect, but uh, she will make an she'll make an exception. But Saw One isn't too heavy on that. It's like it's it's there, but it's not like the crux of the story. No, and it's got Carrie Elways and Lay Winnell before he was the Lay Winnell. Right. Okay, so, so it's it's great. You'll you'll hear us there next on the Saw episode. Yes, done. <laughs> All right. Well, other than that, um, Pierre, why don't why don't you take us off with the last word today? My name is Max. <laughs> <laughs>